Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Earl White's life changed when he met a fiddler who was black, like him. There were never any black fiddlers. And I decided at that point, I want to do that. Today, White is a renowned fiddler and teacher of old-time music. And in the early 1900s, an Eastern Kentucky nurse launched a midwifery program that became known around the world for improving survival rates of babies and new mothers. You know, these are women that came from all over the world. You know, America at that time didn't have nurse midwifery training like they did over in Great Britain. We'll also speak with the author of A New History of Labor about what's happening with an ongoing coal mine strike in Alabama. You know, these people are strong. They're not going to break, but they're tired too. You know, a year is a long time, especially if you have kids or health problems. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Appalachian old-time music is a confluence of a lot of cultures. It brings together traditions of Africans and African-Americans, Native Americans, and the Scots-Irish. And yet, the contributions of Black and Indigenous musicians have often been denied and overlooked. In Floyd County, Virginia, one man is working to make old-time music more available to Black musicians. Our Folkways reporter, Nicole Musgrave, has his story. In a community center in Blacksburg, Earl White is teaching one of his fiddle students how to move the bow in a circular motion. And it's all that circle. So that's what we're building up to, okay? We're doing it on one string now. In old-time music, moving the bow in small circles helps create a drone underneath the melody. So we'll build into that because okay. what we're trying to do, we're I trying see. to build in that drone, that, that continuous note is, that, is what they call that drone. There's my drone here, my notes dancing around it. Earl's in his 60s, and he goes by the name Fiddlin' Earl White. And then at some point I shortened that to few. As in F-E-W. And after I thought about that, I was like, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. There are few black fiddlers in the world today playing Appalachian string band music. Earl lives on a farm in Floyd County, about 30 miles from Blacksburg. He came to old-time music by way of dancing. In the early 70s, when he was a college student in Greenville, North Carolina, Earl and a group of his friends got into clogging. We would be clogging on the porch, clogging in the street. Clogging, basically, clogging became a way of life. They called themselves the Greengrass Cloggers and began performing around the country at folk festivals and clogging competitions. One day, Earl found himself backstage. I was sitting in the green room, and sitting in the corner was this old black man, and he was playing the fiddle. It was Papa John Creech, warming up to go on for Jefferson Airplane. In all of our travels of clogging, there were never any black fiddlers that I saw. And so here he was playing the instrument as a fiddle. And I decided at that point, I, I want to do that. Earl says the fiddle became an extra appendage. Those old-time festivals and fiddler conventions became a learning opportunity. I'd find a jam and I'd put my recorder under the seat of the fiddlers and <laughs> just keep it running. And then I'd go and dance on my board. Earl would watch how those fiddlers used their bows. And he'd listen back to the recordings. One of Earl's favorite players on the festival circuit was Tommy Jarrell, a renowned fiddler from Mount Airy, North Carolina. I used to wake up to Tommy Jarrell. I would go to sleep to Tommy Jarrell. I was humming Tommy Jarrell. I was always whistling Tommy Jarrell. Earl says when he was coming up as a fiddler in the 70s, he was one of the few black people at old-time gatherings. Even though, he says... The music has always belonged to everyone. A lot of what I advocate is that old-time music is not a black music, it's not a white music. It was always played together. But he says that at a certain point, black people started to feel less welcome at these kind of events. A lot of the young people who might have continued those traditions, yet didn't find comfort in going to those festivals. So as a result, the music you know, was being lost in the black community. Plus, they were interested in other kinds of music. People didn't want to, like, 
square dance anymore. They wanted to shake their booties. <laughs> yeah. But on occasion, Earl did run across other black old-time players at festivals. Like the time he met Joe Thompson, a master fiddler from Mebane, North Carolina. When he saw me standing there playing, I, I thought the guy was going to faint, <laughs> you know, or die or something. But he thought he was the only and the last black fiddler in the whole world. Meeting Joe Thompson sent Earl on a quest to find other black fiddlers. But he had trouble tracking down historical details. Yeah, you saw a lot of pictures of blacks holding banjos and blacks holding a fiddle. But there's generally no names associated with the people. Earl says this erasure of black contributions is another reason that old time has been less popular in black communities in recent decades. If you don't see yourself represented in the music, then you there's no reason to feel like you've ever had any kind of connection to it. But Earl's trying to change that. He regularly gives presentations about the participation and influence of black players. And he organizes events around Floyd County that promote black roots musicians. He and his wife and bandmate, Adrian Davis, have also started a music camp on their farm. It's called Big Indian Music Camp. To me, part of that preservation is you know, teaching the younger people at this point, most of Earl's fiddle students are white. But he's teaching his preteen and teenage sons to play. And he hopes that by being an ambassador, he can perpetuate black traditions in old-time music. If a black person, young black person, sees another black person playing, then you know, they can say, oh, wow, I could do that, and might be inspired. And so that's a lot of my uh, focus outside of the fact that I just personally enjoy it. I just love it. <laughs> For Inside Appalachia's Folkways Project, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Floyd County, Virginia. Nicole's story is from our Folkways Reporting Project. The project tells stories about arts and culture across the region. Up next... We'll hear how midwives on horseback in the 1920s and 30s turned eastern Kentucky into a public health success story. There were no roads, there were no bridges, you know, they're fording rivers going through, you know, water and then over, you know, ice and snow and they talk about their, you know, slickers being frozen. That's up after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. In the early 1900s, a nurse named Mary Breckenridge launched a nurse midwifery program in eastern Kentucky. The program became known around the world as a public health project that successfully improved the survival rates of babies and new mothers. This story is told in a documentary by Kentucky Educational Television called Angels on Horseback. Our producer, Roxy Todd, spoke with the film's writer and director, Chelsea Gorman. What was the Frontier Nursing Service in Eastern Kentucky? So Frontier Nursing Service was a nurse midwifery organization uh, that was established in 1925 um, in the mountainous regions of uh, Appalachia, both in and surrounding Leslie County, Kentucky. And the nurse midwives who were involved in the organization delivered the maternity care and generalized health care uh, to families via horseback, given the remoteness of the region. And it was kind of meant to be a demonstration of, you know, a healthcare system that could be replicated throughout the United States um, to kind of bring uh, healthcare to rural America. The service was founded by Mrs. Breckenridge, who hailed from a very prominent Kentucky family, but she didn't exactly grow up in Kentucky herself. It was kind of a childhood on the road. But with, you know, that family, the expectations of the Breckenridge name, you know, were kind of instilled in her, which were to kind of serve and excel at that. 
And, um, you know, in the documentary, we kind of go over some of her many motivations and inspirations throughout her life that, you know, led her to create this service. And the film gets a little bit into her backstory as a mother. Let's listen to a clip from the beginning of the film that talks about what happened to Mary Breckenridge's two children. Her approach to motherhood could not prevent complications during her second pregnancy. And on July 8, 1916, her daughter, Polly, was born prematurely and lived only six hours. In coping with her grief, Mary became even more devoted to her son. Brecky, her son, was her hope. That was her hope for the future. She almost lives vicariously through him. He's going to go and do all the things that she, as a woman, with the limitations of her sphere, she can't do those things herself, but she can raise a young man who can go and save the world from poverty and all the problems that threaten children especially. On January 12th, 1918, came Brecky's fourth birthday, on the 23rd of January, Brecky died. Of his swift illness and death, I cannot write, except to say that he played his part of brave soldier while conscious life remained in him. He had taken all the unaccustomed suffering, terminating his happy life without questioning why it had come, because he believed it was right for a soldier to be brave. He was a well-cared-for child. He had a nurse as a mother. He came from a family of means. He had every advantage that a child growing up in the 19-teens could have. And he still died because death stalked families, and they stalked even families like Mary Breckenridge's. This was devastating for her as it would be for anybody, but um, for Mary Breckenridge, it was a big part of her identity to be a mother. She wrote a whole book about Brecky and his four years on this earth. And she decided at that time that she really needed to do something bigger than what she was doing. And she wanted to do something to serve children. She really thought that if there was better health care, her children may not have died. I mean, what a heartbreaking experience. But what's incredible to me is that 12 days after the death of her four-year-old son, Mary Breckenridge enlisted in the American Red Cross and then went to work the front lines in France during World War I. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you honed in on that. I, every time that I read the passages in her autobiography of, you know, her children, like I, I cried <laughs> and, and rewatching it, you know, it's like I would kind of tear up. It, it's very emotional and had a, a huge impact on her. And, you know, throughout the story, I, you know, hone in on a few times that she works through her grief you know, first with the death of her first husband, um, you know, and she, that's when she trained to become a nurse. And then, you know, in her second marriage, she had the two children, which unfortunately passed away at young ages. And that's when she decided to devote her life to serving children. And the very first opportunity she got with that was to serve with an organization in France that helped, you know, orphan children uh, post-World War One and helped to kind of rebuild that area. And while she's there, uh, she kind of has this epiphany and she writes it in her autobiography that, you know, quote, in France, midwives were not nurses, but in America, nurses were not midwives. In England, trained women were both nurses and midwives. And so, you know, she kind of took that concept of, you know, nurse midwifery and what she saw there working in France and thought, well, this is exactly what we need to do to help rural Americans and, and the children and families that live there that don't have access to health care. And so then she returns from World War I and creates the Frontier Nursing Service. And at that time, infant mortality in the United States was actually quite high. Is that right? And it seems that, you know, she really wanted to help improve the state of public health in rural eastern Kentucky. Talk a little bit about what she did and what was her goal and if she was successful. Yeah, we, um, you know, with the decline of midwifery, you know, we learned from a couple of our interviewees that, you know, at the turn of the century, about half of women gave birth with a midwife. But in, you know, the following 30 years, it declined to be only like 15%. And, um, you know, and there was a lot of pushback to the concept of professional midwifery in the United States. And, you know, kind of this belief that hospital births were the, the safer way to go no matter what. So what she was wanting to do is improve, you know, both the use of midwives and then, you know, the effect of that would be to, you know, have 
fewer mortalities and better overall maternal welfare. Um, just from her own experiences in rural Arkansas, that's where she had her two children. She, you know, had experienced that lack of healthcare, even though she came from a very privileged, you know, she had the healthcare, everything that uh, that she needed, but it was still lacking, right, in the accessibility. So that's what she had hoped to bring to America. And so talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of how the Frontier Nursing Service worked. I mean, these women were literally traveling by horse to get to these really remote communities. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. They um, and one of the nurse midwives in an oral history we have, you know, talks about their saddlebags uh, that were sacrosanct to you know to the deliveries. And you know, and these are conditions. You know, I know many of the people talk about there are you know there were no roads, there were no bridges. You know, they're fording rivers. You know, holding these saddlebags above their heads and you know going through you know water and then over you know ice and snow and just these you know these mountains. And they talk about their you know slickers being frozen. And, you know, and there are countless more stories of, you know, what they did and how they did it, but just they had the skills. They were trained, you know, nurses, they were trained midwives, and they were, you know, down for the adventure. You know, these are women that came from all over the world. You know, America at that time didn't have nurse midwifery training like they did over in Great Britain or in England, rather. You know, so a lot of the, the nurses were either trained there or had been trained before. And, you know, some of these women had done things like this elsewhere in the world um, and come here for, you know, the adventure, but then also to apply their skills to a region that didn't have good health care. And so Mary Breckenridge gets this program up and running. And a few years in, we're, we're talking in the 1930s, in the heart of the Great Depression, all of a sudden, Eastern Kentucky has some of the best public health statistics in the country. Can you talk a little bit about how the rest of the world began visiting Eastern Kentucky and looking to it as an example of how to improve public health in rural regions? The world took notice because, you know, Mrs. Breckenridge was a master at PR. You know, she was, she spoke um, at many occasions, you know, she had many connections just from her, you know, familial connections and, and kind of being in that upper echelon of society. So she had these ways of sharing what they were doing. But then on top of it, yeah, they were successful and with their method, you know, by 1937. So yeah, we're in the heart of the depression and they had delivered over 3000 babies and had only lost two mothers in those 12 years. Um, you know, from the founding up until that point. And this was done by that concept of district nursing. You know, the outpost clinics were scattered throughout, you know, the region, but they surrounded a, a central hospital. And so there was, you know, easy access to health care. And the community bought into it too. They they helped to build the outposts that, you know, they invited the healthcare workers who came in to study it and apply these methods elsewhere. So it, it was a working demonstration, you know, back then. And a lot of people took note and, and, and it was successful. I thought it was interesting that Ashley Judd narrates this documentary. Uh, she does a really fantastic job. How did that come about and how did you get her for this project? Yeah, we were so, so thrilled to have her, you know, bring the script to life. I had heard it in my head as writing, you know, I kind of had eyed her from from the get go. We knew we wanted to try to go big and we did and it, and it worked out. <laughs> so we're, we're grateful for that. One more question I have, and I know you're not an expert in midwifery today. You're a filmmaker, but, you know, we talked a little bit about the stigma against midwives and home births. And today in Appalachia, we're still facing this stigma. And a lot of the midwives I've interviewed, um, you know, have had trouble and faced legal repercussions for assisting in home births in some parts of Appalachia. Can you comment at all on what you think Mary Breckenridge would say about where we've come? Would she be disappointed in our progress, do you think? Oh, gosh. Um, I know I definitely cannot speak for Mrs. Breckenridge, and I assuredly know that she would not want me to <laughs> for her. She was a very, very strong personality. So I don't I don't want to, you know, assume what she would think. And, you know, and I do recognize that there are a lot of challenges still, you know, as you pointed out with, you know, here 100 years later, you know, many of the same challenges even. 
but you know, I think that also her efforts were successful, you know, and what she created with uh, the frontier nursing service and, you know, and how they've gone on, you know, from here, you know, there are trained nurse midwives providing care to the underserved communities worldwide, even today still. So, you know, I, I don't know that she'd be completely, you know, disappointed, but um, would probably recognize that there is still, you know, uh, work to do. And yeah, I'm definitely not a healthcare expert, but you know what the women of frontier nursing service achieved, you know, was just fascinating to just peel back every every layer of it and how they did it and, you know, how they made it happen in, in such a remarkable time of American history as well. That was Chelsea Gorman, writer and director of a documentary about KET called Angels on Horseback. You can watch the full documentary online. We've posted a link on our website, wvpublic.org. So, as we just heard, midwives in Appalachia improved health for mothers and babies in our grandparents' and great-grandparents' generations. Yet, 80 years later, births assisted by midwives are much less common. Another film explores why some mothers today in Appalachia choose home birth. Lauren Santucci produced and directed the film called Birthplace, which follows a mother in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Roxy Todd called Santucci to learn more. Lauren, what made you decide to do a documentary about home birth in West Virginia? So honestly, in the very beginning, it stemmed from purely curiosity. I realized that as a young woman that was considering having children myself, I literally did not know what options would be available outside of the hospital. And so I started looking into home birth and I did this long form photo essay about midwives in southeastern Ohio and how they were the birth providers for different women there. And I chose to do a deeper dive in a documentary because I really wanted to get at what the motivations were behind women who are choosing home birth. And West Virginia is a very interesting um, place to explore that because there's such a long history of midwifery, like home birth midwifery in Appalachia and in West Virginia specifically, but such low rates of home birth today. I think in West Virginia, it's less than 1% of women, you know, give birth at home. And so Cassie was an amazing character to explore this because she gave birth to her first child in the hospital. Um, she wasn't completely satisfied with that experience. And so she, she looked into home birth and had her second child at home. And then for her third child, which is what the documentary follows, she chose to have a home birth. So she had both of these experiences and was able to make the decision that home birth was the right one for her, you know, for the second time. And so she was really able to articulate what that decision was and why that was important to her and what part of the home birth experience made that decision for her, if that makes sense. To have a home birth, Cassie actually has to travel two hours to her appointments. And sometimes they last up to two hours. I can see why, you know, if somebody had a full-time job and they were juggling childcare, making these trips just might not seem feasible for all people. It, it really is one reason why home birth is just not accessible to all people in rural Appalachia. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think access is a huge problem here. And, you know, Lauren, the midwife, has a very good reputation in, in you know, the region in southeastern Ohio and parts of West Virginia. And so because of her experience and expertise, people will travel for that. And so, yeah, I mean, Cassie, right, would drive like, you know, an hour and a half, two hours with her two toddlers and go to her appointments. And, um, you know, she obviously, you know, wasn't working full time at that moment and so was able to do that. But again, that's not a feasible thing for most people. Yeah. And in this birth, what was Cassie's birth plan? I know she had a plan B for if she had to be transported to a hospital if something went wrong. Yeah, I think that's a great question because I feel like people generally like see home birth as this like very reckless or kind of irresponsible decision in some cases. And, you know, it's been shown in, in many studies that if you are, you know, have a low risk pregnancy and are working with a professional midwife, um, to have a home birth, your, you know, your birth will is no more, there's no added risk, if that makes sense. 
Um, and so, yeah, so Cassie's plan was to have a home birth with uh, no medical intervention because Lauren, her midwife, isn't a doctor or a physician or a nurse. She cannot administer, you know, certain drugs and certain procedures. And so um, this is a completely like natural uh, childbirth that Cassie wanted. Now, if things started to get out of control where Lauren felt that Cassie's safety or the safety of the baby was in jeopardy, then their plan was to uh, go to the hospital, which they were just outside of Parkersburg. And so it wouldn't have taken them very long to get to the hospital at all. And a lot of the times uh, Lauren will, you know, drive them herself. And Lauren's constantly monitoring the heart rate of the baby, the heart rate of Cassie, making sure that Cassie is emotionally in a good place to continue with the home birth. And that's what she wants. If at any moment Cassie said, I don't want to do this anymore, I need to go to the hospital, you know, Lauren would have either called an ambulance or driven her to the hospital straight away. And so, you know, they take safety very seriously. And again, like Lauren is an expert in this and, you know, wants her clients to be safe and healthy. And so, yeah, that's a priority. Safety is a priority for them. And in this particular birth, Lauren wasn't the only person there to help. You know, Cassie had her husband there to assist, and there was also a doula and an assistant midwife. Can you talk about the team who was there? Yeah, Cassie had a lot of support at her birth, and that's actually one of the big reasons why she wanted to have a home birth. So the main support people around her were Lauren, her midwife. There was an assistant midwife, Ash, who Lauren uses as a kind of person to make sure that they're both on the same page and make sure that everything's going the way that they want to. Uh, Cassie also decided to have a doula and that doula is supporting her more emotionally and suggesting maybe different birthing positions and just kind of ensuring that, um, you know, she's comfortable or as comfortable as she can be throughout that process. And then she also had her husband, Tony, who was, I mean, acting as a doula almost as well and was extremely supportive of her too. And Cassie even had her extended family in the other room. They kind of come out, you know, when the baby's born, they're stayed in the other room for most of the um, her labor. But, um, you know, grandparents were there, some family friends were there. And so it was really kind of like a community activity almost. <laughs> but that's I know that's what Cassie wanted. And I, she would never have been able to do that in the hospital during the pandemic. And so, yeah, that's the experience that she wanted. So let's listen to the last minute of your documentary. This first voice we'll hear is Cassie, the mom, and then Lauren Genter, the midwife. And then we hear a scene between Cassie and her oldest son, Zeke. I think we lost a lot of the confidence that this is something we were made to do, that our bodies are totally capable of doing. What do you think? Yeah. I really believe that there's benefits and risks no matter where you choose to give birth. Every family, every couple, every individual um, approaching birth should have a chance to make that decision from an educated standpoint. That's baby Nina. Baby Mina. Say ma ma Mina. Yeah. Do you remember when Gabe was that small? No. See, baby Mina was in mommy's belly. And now she's not there anymore. She came out. She came out, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're the big brother. And Gabe's a small brother. And Gabe's a small brother. And then you have a baby sister. So that's Cassie Garcia, a mother in Parkersburg, West Virginia, with her oldest son. She's a mother of three children. Lauren, how's Cassie's family doing today? Have you checked in with them recently? Yeah, so um, Mina, who was the baby that's born in the film, is now 15 months old. And Cassie is also back teaching uh, childbirth education classes in person. And she teaches those alongside her doula, who's in the film as well. And you bring up a point that we hadn't talked about. Cassie is, in addition to being a mother who's experienced home birth, is now teaching childbirth classes. What made her decide to start teaching these classes? Yeah, it was after her first birth in the hospital. And so she, yeah, she was, she started teaching childbirth education classes after her first hospital birth because she felt actually very empowered after that experience and wanted to ensure that other women could feel the same way. 
Lauren Santucci is a documentary filmmaker, and she produced a short film called Birthplace, Home Birth in West Virginia. Lauren, thank you so much for talking with us about your film. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. We've posted a link on our website where you can watch Santucci's 14-minute documentary, Birthplace. That's at wvpublic.org. On November 5th, 2020, a popular restaurant in Fayetteville, West Virginia, burned to the ground. The Secret Sandwich Society was a destination for travelers to the area and a gathering place for the community. Bryson Sapio is a student reporter at the Fayette Institute of Technology and brings us this story on what the fire means for the community and what's next in rebuilding. Fayetteville is a small town in the heart of West Virginia known for its rafting and outdoor community. It hosts a variety of places to eat that are very popular with the locals and tourists. Secret Sandwich Society, a town favorite restaurant and a hot spot for the music scene in Fayetteville, was popular for their unique sandwiches and late night live music. The restaurant lived in a historic 100-year-old building that had seen many different uses during Fayetteville's history. Louis Reinhardt, the proud owner of Secret Sandwich Society, watched as it all went up into flames. We were operating at our highest level of efficiency that we had ever operated at. And then on November 5th, it all burned down. Fayetteville's mayor, Sharon Cruikshank. I mean, everybody was just in shock. Uh, Everybody was really um, devastated for Lewis and the staff. It It was very upsetting. After working on the restaurant for years and dedicating his life into making secret what it was, Lewis was devastated and heartbroken. His life's work was gone overnight. But in the weeks after that, you know, I just cried and cried and cried and cried. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was just, it was terrible. Yeah. You know, I'd wake up and cry. I'd go to the shower and cry. You know, it was just, it was awful. Secret was a town favorite in Fayetteville. They had live music performances five nights a week. This by itself attracted lots of people to the area. Losing Secret also meant losing a big part of Fayetteville's music scene, says the mayor, Sharon Crookshank. I think Secret became such a destination in itself just because of the music and the food. So the fire was really devastating to us uh, because they brought such a, um, a neat vibe to the town. Lewis received an overwhelming amount of support from the people in the community and from people across the state. The outpouring of support in, that, in those weeks after that, so that in, in literally that day and that evening, I got a phone call from Joe Manchin. I got a phone call from Carol Miller. I got a phone call from Shelley Moore Capito. I got letters from the Charleston City Council. You know, it was just really just incredible. The community of Fayetteville really showed their true colors after the building burned down. We have Adam Matthews, Lewis's right-hand man. When that building burned down, everybody was just there for us. That was it, you know? Yeah, it was very emotional. It was, it was surreal. The community really came together and lifted lifted Lewis and his staff up. So I think that that exemplified what we're about in Fayette County. When it comes time to taking care of each other, we, we step up. Secret brought in a lot of business for Fayetteville. The restaurant provided many people with a good and reliable place to eat. With this aspect of Fayetteville gone, people really started to notice how much Secret brought to the town. Secret was the very successful business for Fayetteville. Um, all of our restaurants do really well, uh, but they were very successful business. This was a hard hit for them uh, as well as for our community because then it created a deficit of places for people to eat uh, when they were in the New River Gorge area. After a long wait for Fayetteville and for Lewis and a year-long search for a location to rebuild and start a new secret, Lewis settled on rebuilding in the same location as where the building last stood. Then we really started revisiting the rebuild idea. We closed on the deal for the building at the end of November, last day of November. So what has been happening now is the building is designed and ready to go. The new restaurant design pays homage to the old building and is designed to imitate the nostalgic feel of the previous restaurant. But it still adds elements of a modern layout. Lewis and Adam were able to add things into the new restaurant that would help their productivity and make things move faster. There was a silver lining 
to all this pain and stress and frustration and, you know, everything, we are getting a building that we want. Now we are getting a building that we can deliver the output and quality that we've always wanted. He kept that historic flair to it, which is really great because, you know, that once, once they're gone, they're gone. So it's really nice when you get somebody that embraces that um, history and wants to try to recreate it. As construction starts on the new building, there is a sense of anticipation growing in the community and appreciation for the resiliency demonstrated this past year. Phoenix rising from the ashes type metaphor. I mean, it's like everybody said that and there's there's irony or or whatever in, in how how we went out and there's, you know, a great deal of symbolism to me and how we're coming back. I don't think that it can happen too soon. I think everybody's way past ready for, for Lewis to open up. So I think it'll be a really nice homecoming. It definitely will be a town celebration. I'm standing here on the construction site of the new restaurant, watching them pour concrete for the new foundation. After this tragic chapter in Secrets history, Lewis and his team have worked against the odds and made what seemed to be a hopeless situation into a new beginning. They're planning to have their doors open by this fall. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Bryson Sapio in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Bryson produced that story as part of a mentorship project with Inside Appalachia. Next up is another story as classmates reported. In 2020, the federal government designated West Virginia's New River Gorge as a national park. That new designation's already bringing more tourists to Fayette County. But it's also bringing a lot of additional traffic. Anna Skaggs and Devin Washington are two more student reporters at the Fayette Institute of Technology, and they both live near the gorge. They have this story about safety concerns in their community. As local teenagers who learn to drive on these roads, we welcome the new visitors. However, increased traffic has begun to affect locals. The larger number of vehicles has created more wear on the roads, longer commute times, and has started to affect the community. Many have agreed that this is the most traffic we've had in the area for years. Nick Mooney, a longtime resident and a deputy sheriff for 16 years, had a lot to say on this as well as the draw of U.S. Route 60. I would, I would absolutely say it's probably tripled. Um, and Route 60 is unique because, you know, it's a U.S. highway, U.S. Route 60. But there's also a lot of attractions just off Route 60. There's little offshoots of a mile, two miles, and you, so we see it a lot of work on the back roads. There's so much more traffic. A lot of locals, both young and old, have noticed the change in the community. Debbie McClintock, a more recent resident, has even heard about the change from just within the few years she has lived here. When you talk to some of the old timers, for them to say there's a lot of traffic on Route 60, yeah. you know, when they were around when these towns were booming, you know, when Anstead and Raynell and, and those places were really cranking out um, some stuff, <laughs> for them to say that the traffic is worse now is, I mean, that's pretty in indicative of how bad it is. Personally, we both have had experiences with out-of-state traffic, which has affected our daily commute to school, work, and running errands. Along with the new visitors and tourism traffic, commercial traffic has also increased from semi-trucks to log and gravel trucks. When I talk to people on Route 60, what they say is we see mostly an increase in truck traffic because you have a lot of commercial um, drivers who are trying to avoid the tolls on Route 64. So there is a ton of commercial traffic on Route 60. As a new driver, I typically try to avoid large commercial trucks as much as possible, and within the last year, it seems like the number of them I've had to avoid has practically quadrupled. The tourism and commercial traffic alone hasn't amounted to any increase in accidents. However, it's the fact that West Virginia roads aren't meant to handle the increased use. Being a rural community, our roads don't normally have this much use or the amount of attention and funding required for the upkeep. Again, here's Deputy Sheriff Mooney. If we want to continue to keep it at a satisfactory level for our in-state residents, when you have triple the traffic that it normally would, whereas if you normally paved the road every 12 years, well now we have triple the traffic, so now you're looking at about every four years, can we keep up with that funding? The added work also puts a toll on road maintenance crews, says Michael Knight, the shop crew leader for the state road garage in this area. Not on like a U.S. 60 because the federal government helps uh, helps us fund on that. That's a state funded road too. But on like our side roads here, the roads that's that's going to like uh, to the campgrounds and, and stuff like that with more uh, campers and stuff that's being towed in there, yes. 
Several campgrounds and outdoor attractions are along U.S. Route 60 and bring in more tourists onto our roads that are not federally funded. The traffic's made it harder for these workers who are just trying to do their job. That makes it harder to uh, to uh, deal with, you know, to worry about the funding and more folks are, are uh, out there and they expect it to be top notch. You know, the, the public don't, they don't see the amount of, of uh, traffic and, uh, and the amount that we get time to work on that road and it does wear a lot more, yes. Because of the wilderness attractions, the rise in the number of tourists has affected more than just the roadways. There has been a noticeable effect on our wildlife as well. According to Deputy Mooney, since the designation of the park and preserve, the number of accidents involving our wildlife has probably quadrupled. There is not only a rise in concern for wildlife, but for the heightened amount of foot traffic as well, says Mooney. One of my biggest concerns as a deputy sheriff is it's not necessarily the vehicle traffic, it's the foot traffic. I see a lot of foot traffic on Route 60 and, and little offshoot roads over there. It used to be you go through on a pretty weekend, there'd be seven or eight cars. They came in and widened the berms for parking, added more parking, and now that you drive through there on a Saturday when it's pretty, there'll be 60 people walking on the roadway. Even with all the concerns that have been observed, everyone we've talked with has offered varying solutions to the issues presented. We asked Deputy McClintock what she thinks could be done to improve out-of-state traffic. I think there's a lot of uh, things that you can do both on the roadway and with signage to calm down the traffic, both with locals Mm -hmm. and with tourists. I mean, a tourist needs to be advised a whole lot more Um, than a local about some of the more treacherous spots. We asked the same question to Michael Knight, the state road employee. Just just go uh, slow and uh, and pay pay attention, be alert. That's the biggest thing that that we deal with with folks not uh, not uh, being alert. They run our signs, they they uh, they uh, hit up a pothole or a rut in the road. You know, a lot, lot, lot of stuff could be why avoided if the if uh, the if the general public was just more alert? And Deputy Sheriff Nick Mooney. You know, social media is a big thing now. It might be a social media blitz or a social media campaign where we just, hey, look, these folks are here. They're coming to enjoy what we've been able to enjoy our whole life. And when they do come, they, you know, if I'm from out of state and I, I want to go somewhere, the first place I'm going to go is to find some type of literature or some t- information, like a visitor center or something. And there could be signage there hey, we know you're here to have a good time and enjoy what we can enjoy every day. Thank you for coming, but be cognizant of our local citizens. I'm Devin Washington. I'm Anna Skaggs. And this is Inside Appalachia. Those last two stories were made by students at the Fayette Institute of Technology as part of a mentorship project with Inside Appalachia. Coal miners in Alabama have been on strike for more than a year. On April 1st, 2021, 1,100 union miners who worked for Warrior Met Coal walked out of the mines and went on strike for a better contract. Kim Kelly is a freelance journalist and organizer who writes a labor column for Teen Vogue. She's been covering the strike and wrote about it in her new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. I recently spoke with Kim Kelly and started by asking about what's happening with those miners striking in Alabama. I'll keep it to the cliff notes, but essentially Warrior Met, they bought these mines, they bought this company about five years ago. And prior to that, it was owned by Jim Walter Resources. And the contract under which those workers were laboring at that time was pretty good. People were pretty happy with it. But then that company went bankrupt. Warrior Met swooped in. They rehired a bunch of people that had been laid off, but essentially they're like, okay, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll continue to operate the mines, we'll rehire you, but you're going to have to accept this really terrible contract and like a $6 an hour pay cut. We're going to slash your personal time. We're just going to run you ragged and you're going to have to accept it for now. But once we're back in the black, you know, we'll, we'll make things right. And so by the time the you know, negotiations came around five years later, the workers expected the company to hold up their end of the deal and to offer something decent at the bargaining table. And that did not happen. It's been very, a very contentious strike. It's been pretty grueling. People have been injured. A lot of people have been arrested. There's kind of some shades of Harlan County going on down there in Brookwood and Tuscaloosa County. 
I really just hope that it ends soon and that they win because, you know, these people are strong. They're not going to break, but they're tired too. You know, a year is a long time, especially if you have kids or health problems, like something's got to give. You've, you've been all over this strike and it's, it's in your new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. This book comes out at a time when we're seeing um, a renewed push, I think, for organized labor across American life. And yet this strike has not received that much coverage. Why is that? I have a, I have a couple different theories. I think it is just an unfortunate fact that people outside of those communities don't really care about coal miners. They're, they don't necessarily have the most sympathetic public image because, you know, we're in the midst of the climate crisis. A lot of assumptions are made about how coal miners and their families, you know, vote, like how they, they veer politically. Alabama is a very politically deep red state, but these workers are not a monolith. And even if a lot of them are conservative, Christian, Republican, does that mean that they don't deserve a living wage and to see their families to come home safe? I think I've seen a lot of really ignorant takes on the fact that these are, you know, just a a group of rural deep South blue collar workers and the assumptions that people outside of those worlds make about those kinds of workers. Yeah. It's, it's been really frustrating because this story is so fascinating and these people are so fascinating and there's so much history there and so many nuances and the complexities. Like I could write three books about this strike, but I guess that's because I took the time to listen and, kept coming down and got to know people. I, I think it's perhaps easy to write people off if you don't understand them or their way of life or their profession. But yeah, it's it's really just an incredible story. And I really hope that people wake up to what they've been missing and show some support because this is the longest strike in Alabama history. It's about to be one of the longest coal miner strike in American history. And that means something. Some of the, what you're describing, I saw parallels when I talked with the black jewel miners who did the train blockade in Harlan County. Oh, my um, God, I have to tell it you. It was pretty similar. They, two of those folks, uh, Chris and Dalton, two of the miners involved in that blockade, they're on strike at Warrior Met. They moved to Alabama, and they are part of this strike. The title of your book, Fight Like Hell, comes from Mother Jones, and she is re, you know, renowned here in Appalachia. How does Appalachia factor into the untold history of American labor? I think Appalachia and specifically like people involved in the coal mining industry and that history, it does get a lot of attention on a surface level. It's like, oh yeah, the, the coal miners and the mine wars and it got violent. Like, yeah, some stuff went down. Like we know about all that. I was like, but do you? Like, do you know about Mob Blizzard? Do you know about the women sabotaging the company trains? Do you know about Mother Jones being in prison? Do you know about the black coal miners who are involved? Like there's so many, even a case like that in which I think it's fairly well known that Appalachia has this very strong working class pro-union history. Well, actually, maybe it isn't that well known anymore, right? Because I suppose thanks to certain political realities, West Virginia gets painted as something that it isn't by people that don't understand. And when people talk about, you know, the pro-union, pro-labor history of, of Appalachia and of West Virginia, maybe some people find that to be a surprise. Like, I remember when there was all this coverage of um, the teacher strikes a couple years ago, and there was so much surprise that folks in these quote-unquote red states were taking to the streets and going on strike and defying, you know, leadership in that way. And I was like, well, why wouldn't they? This is where the Battle of Blair Mountain was fought. This is where workers went up against the bosses and like the largest insurrection, like workers insurrection in U.S. history. Like those roots go deep. That history is so alive and the people that know about it care about it so deeply. I think there's so much there and it would behoove people to dig into it a little deeper, even if they think they know the stories already. What I love about this book is that you don't just go for the obvious beats that like in the chapter of the miners, you're talking about how women got into the coal mining industry or the role of black labor in these labor struggles. Yeah, going into it, I was interested in the stories that weren't as well known. Like like you mentioned, uh, the role of black workers like within the Appalachian coal mining industry's history. That is a fascinating subject. 
And I even uh, found that the salt mines in, in West Virginia have a long history. They used to be a big business, a big deal, like these massive salt furnaces. Booker T. Washington worked in those salt mines when he was nine years old. And I'm sure that shaped a lot of his his later work as a civil as an activist and as a great thinker. Yeah, just seeing those intersections, like here, like reading about how incarcerated black laborers who were used for convict labor were brought in to break strikes, and how sometimes that didn't go as planned. Like um, in Tennessee in the 1891 Cold Creek War, that was something that happened. Bosses brought in convict laborers to break a strike, and the union miners wouldn't let them like they just kept setting those workers free and eventually they won like those are the stories that jump out to me because i'm like that is just so cool that is so inspiring like i wish more people knew about this because that might make more people just get interested in labor history in general like this history belongs to all of us but we've just only been told certain narratives about certain types of people well i'd, I'd love how broad-ranging this book is, and yet concise. You tread so much different ground looking at these struggles over the years. And for me, it's impossible to read or research history without seeing parallels to the present and future. So as a practicing journalist who has spent the last couple of years researching and writing this book, what do you see when you look around you? What do you see in the future? We're in such an exciting moment right now. Like history is being made right now. I've obviously, well, maybe not obviously, in case folks weren't aware about what's happening uh, with Amazon and with Starbucks workers, like there's this massive, very public wave of very well-known companies being faced with these very successful union drives in a way that I think people would not have expected a few years ago. I mean, I just saw last night that Birmingham, Alabama just got its first unionized Starbucks. It's a very exciting and interesting time. And I think workers are fed up and workers are interested in the idea of building collective power and are moving away from depending on politicians to help us and are looking to themselves and their own perceptions of their lives and their labor and their place in this world and just realizing that they deserve so much better. That was Kim Kelly, journalist, activist, and author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Earl White, Blue Dot Sessions, West Swing, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our episodes. Or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.